friends, countrymen, lovers of all things design. This is Grits and Grids. This week, I'm speaking with Debbie Millman. Debbie, why don't you say hi and maybe give a little bit of a backstory? Oh, hello, everybody. Uh, let's see. Well, I am an, a designer and I worked as a brand consultant and still do. Um, but I was the president of design at a company called Sterling Brands for 20 years. And I'm also the chair of the Master's in Branding program at the School of Visual Arts, where I've been teaching now for, oh gosh, over a decade. And uh, author of a bunch of books, and I've been curating, and I just curated a show, a wonderful show, in my humble opinion, um, at the uh, Museum of Design in Atlanta, which I believe is your hometown. Yeah, and it's a wonderful show. I, I took the uh, my entire team there to, one, see you speak with a Miss Paula mm. Cher um, live, which was amazing. And then we got a chance to go across the street and check out the show, which is also brilliant. I think I will be sending one of my team down there to cover it on the blog a little more in depth because um, there's a lot of good stuff Thank you. there. Um, well, thanks for taking time out today to have some fun and uh, talk shop. Uh, the first part of this episode is the grits and kind of talk about the food. So growing up, what what did Little Debbie, all jokes are welcome, uh, what was your favorite thing to eat? What, what did uh, you go Barbecue to? Lay's potato chips. <laughs> that's a good one <laughs> I, do you still well, go back to it oh, do you course, still eat them of course i i found i mean this is this is sort of part of my history now in a in a really significant way but i found a drawing that i had done when i was about eight years old and i had drawn uh the city of manhattan and indicated the various things on the city block by name so the bank was labeled bank and the Taxi was labeled taxi and the dry cleaners was labeled cleaners. And then I drew a truck and on the truck, um, it said potato chips, but I drew the logo as well. Lay's <laughs> so, yeah, potato it. chips, eight years old. Not only was I, I loving eating them, but I also began drawing them. So who knew? That's amazing. That's your first uh, brand design. Yes, maybe. yes absolutely. <laughs> I love it. So, um, you know, a little bit later in life, how how do you feel that food or drink has affected and or inspired your work? Um, well, I love to eat and I love to drink and I think it just inspires my life. Um, I, I am somebody that really enjoys um, comfort and intimacy and um, food is such a big part of that. And I, I love sitting with my friends and having a glass of wine. And I love um, my coffee in the morning. And all of these things are highly ritualized and, and really, really a big part of who I am. Yeah, it's amazing how it can really uh, set the social scene, I think. Um, my wife and I both have glasses of wine that are kind of a joke. They're basically huge, huge bells that fit an entire bottle of wow. wine. So, yeah, so it's like, yeah, I'm just going to have a glass of wine tonight, <laughs> except you know, a bottle. I, um, I like to drink my wine out of tumblers. I don't like to drink them out of wine glasses because I find the stems to be really thin and fragile. And I'm a bit uh, of a klutz and um, somewhat uh, prone to tripping and falling. And <laughs> <laughs> so you need that nice, steady yeah, base. Exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's so, awesome. I uh, turned into a bit of a snob with my wine uh, due to a couple of clients that we work with. And um, so I don't really care about the glass unless I'm drinking Burgundy, mm. in which case I want a really big fat bell. That's I think it just opens up the wine really nicely. But um, So in the morning, everyone has their ritual. Are you a coffee gal or are you more like a tea? Oh, God, no. What, what, what do you think? I you? am only a coffee gal. But I, I have to actually clarify because I, I really loathe tea. I loathe the smell of tea. I loathe the taste of tea. However, I do love kombucha, which is technically a fermented tea. So I have to somewhat... Mm. Um, broaden my my acceptance um intellectually and philosophically of tea (laughs) so was it just i mean is it just something that is natural or did you have a bad tea i just don't like the smell (laughs) i don't like the smell and and therefore i don't like the taste so no i've i've never ever in my entire life had a glass or a cup of hot tea ever i maybe have had a sip but never ever once uh, have I had a cup of tea. Um, So I am a huge coffee person. I love coffee. I love all different kinds of coffee. I have a subscription to uh, a coffee maker in Washington State uh, called Victrola, and I get coffee Mm -hmm. from them all the time. I, I first came... I first encountered Victrola Coffee at from an AIGA event. When I was there, I was given a sample of Victrola Coffee, and I loved it. I thought it was the best coffee I'd ever tasted in my life. And so I investigated and just started ordering from them directly. And they have two blends that I love, uh, Empire and Triborough. And so I, I drink them with great regularity. And then there's also a wonderful coffee shop in Manhattan, not a coffee shop, but a, a coffee store, um, Coffee mm-hmm. NT. It's called McNulty's and it's on Christopher Street and it's totally old school with the big old barrels and canisters and it's absolutely gorgeous. And you walk in and you're just engulfed by the incredible smell of coffee. And I also get my coffee there. So I actually have two drawers in my freezer, one of which is completely filled with coffee. Now, I know that there are going to be some coffee aficionados out there that say, oh, you shouldn't be freezing the beans. But I I tend to like to, um, I grind them and then um, make my coffee in the morning. um, And it works really well for me. But I have an entire shelf in my freezer filled with just different variations of coffee. Oh, it sounds like magic. So it's interesting that Victrola is out of Washington, but it sounds like the name of their coffees are after New York. Uh, some of them, not all of them, but but okay. yeah, I kind of love that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little piece of it, right? And I don't care what the coffee snobs say. So listen, I, I love coffee a lot and I'll drink all different kinds of coffee, but I love Cafe Bustello. It's like $2. Oh, Cafe for- Bustello is fantastic. And the stronger, the yeah. better. It's fantastic. Absolutely. And I, I practically grew up in this stuff. It's uh, I'm part Puerto Rican, kind of grew up drinking it. Um, you know, in, in Hispanic cultures, coffee at the age of like five is not a thing that is Why frowned would it upon. Be? <laughs> yeah, I know. It shouldn't be. I agree. It's something I plan on uh, carrying on through the legacy. Yeah. <laughs> so if you had to uh, prepare one meal just to impress some friends or guests that are coming over, what would it be? Do you, do you cook at home? I guess is the bigger question. I do question. cook at home. Um, I don't cook as much as I used to because I moved and uh, the place that I'm living in now has a really super fancy oven that I can't figure out how to use. 
and I've had um, people come in to show me. I just feel like it, I'm doomed with this oven. So I have to figure out what I'm going to do. In my old apartment, I had a tiny, really old oven, but it worked beautifully. And I used to cook much more often. Probably my fanciest um, my fanciest thing to make is um, a Bernays sauce uh, with artichokes. And I, years and years and years ago, I was using a recipe from the Cafe des Artistes restaurant, uh, a book of mm -hmm. their recipes. And I came across a Bernays sauce for Eggs Benedict. And one day I ran out of the type of vinegar that they were recommending to use for the eggs benedict for the Bernays sauce and I had balsamic vinegar in the house and I used that instead and so the Bernays sauce had a slightly sort of smoky look to it um, and it was fantastic it was unbelievable and so now I make my Bernays sauce I always make my Bernays sauce with uh, balsamic vinegar instead of just a, a traditional more traditional Bernays uh, vinegar um, and so then I branched out to putting it on other things. And so I'll steam some artichokes and you can dip the, the leaves in the Bernays sauce. And that's fantastic. That's probably the fanciest thing that I make. The things that I tend mm -hmm. to enjoy making most are more comfort foods. Like I make a really good uh, chicken cacciatore. I make a really good roast chicken um, with um, uh, some sauteed potatoes. I make really good home fries. Uh, with garlic mm -hmm. and shallots and but so very very basic <laughs> things um i'm you know roasted potatoes with rosemary and you know things like that i'm not i'm not fancy at all and i can't bake to save no, my I mean, life because great, i don't though. have that sort of delicate touch that you need for baking yeah i mean i'm staring in the face of uh, my first thanksgiving that oh, i'm cooking yeah. Um, yeah yeah so i i know i know the feeling i'm i'm a bit daunted and it's actually uh, great because you know, I'm speaking to you, obviously, and then I'm actually going to be speaking to a few other people from Pentagram, uh, Michael Beirut and uh, Paul Together? Scher, actually. And no, no, I'm going to do them separate, I think, just because um, I think it would quickly become uh, a talk between Michael and, and Paula. <laughs> well, that'll be really, really fun. That'll be really fun. Yeah, but needless to say, it's a, you know it's a bit daunting to talk to like what I consider uh, the iconoclasts of the industry uh, for this you know our generation in general. Um, but I'm not that worried about this one because I have the turkey day, and I'm like that's all I can think about right now is not messing oh, up the yeah. turkey, and it's been like that for so like. Do a you week. have a Do you have a uh, poultry thermometer? I do. Got the thermometer. I, I got all. So, I got it so all. So that's great. So know? I used to make Thanksgiving um, in this old 24 inch oven that I had for 30 people every year. I called it Debbie's Thanksgiving for wayward adults. It was basically people that had no place else to go. And I would invite everybody mm -hmm. that had no place else to go over to my house and we'd eat and drink. That all changed when my brother had children. And now I tend to spend it with family. Um, but I loved, loved making Thanksgiving. And it would take, take me the whole week to, to do. Um, so yes, yeah, so you must have a thermometer. That's the best way. Um, don't forget to tent the turkey. Um, have some poultry scissors as well so that it's really super easy to cut the bones for the legs. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. definitely, definitely make sure you learn how to carve. 
Um, watch as much as you can, watch as many YouTube videos as you can about carving. I learned how to carve actually from watching TV shows on the um, Food Network. And I have become a really good carver. The other thing about carving, make sure you have a really good sharp knife. So the carving, I think I got down pat. I've I've taken over that role every Thanksgiving. Um, But it's the cooking part that I'm like, and I, I, it's one of those things I know I'm going to do it. Are you going to stuff your turkey? Um, oh, yeah. So my mom has a – I finally got my mom to give up the <laughs> recipe. She she has a tri-bread Ooh. recipe that is uh, oh, so good. And I promised her I wouldn't um, put it out into the world. So I can't give the recipe away, but I'll tell you that it's a sourdough and a pumpernickel and like an Italian. And it's um, – hmm. Oh, it is so nice. good. And what else so, do you put in? I used to put in oysters and sausage and ooh. all sorts of amazing things. Prunes are amazing in, in stuffing. Oh, God, that yeah. sounds so good. I wasn't even going that fancy. I might have to change it now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe put some apples, apples in there. I, I have like a, no, save the apples for the pie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the interviews that you've done, I, I think – they're all really great. And there are some that I think are even greater than great. But the one that I think that stuck with me the most uh, was Massimo Vignelli. And um, one, I mean, one, I guess the big question is, were you, were you a bit daunted? Were you a bit nervous for that, for that oh, of interview? Course. I'm a bit daunted for a lot of my interviews. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Massimo, you know, Massimo was such a warm, generous, loving, kind person. Um, I, I first um, spoke with him when I interviewed him for my book, How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer, which was an extraordinary experience. Um, but literally, in in order to reach him at the time, I had no way of, of reaching him via email. This was 2005 or 2006, and it wasn't as easy to reach people that way. Um, and so I called his studio, and I Ooh. asked to speak to Massimo Vignelli. I'll get back to that in a minute. And he said, speaking. (laughs) And I talked to him about what I was doing and asked him if I could interview him for the book. I was totally taken aback that it was actually him that I was talking to. And um, Mm -hmm. he invited me over to his studio a week or so later. And I show up and he opens the door and he's like, oh, I thought you were coming yesterday. And I was like, what? (laughs) So I still to this day don't know if he got it wrong or I got it wrong, but nevertheless, he was incredibly gracious and I came in and we did our interview and it was one of the best interviews that I've ever done. The the interview in How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer with both him and Michael Beirut are two of my absolute favorites ever. Um, And then uh, when I started doing the podcast, he was the second podcast I did in a studio Um, and so we were sitting face to face. My producer was there. This was the second time that I was doing something that, that formal with my producer there. And we start, I start talking about him and I, I start introducing him and he says, Oh, we must stop. And I said, why? What's the matter? I was immediately terrified. And he said, Debbie, (laughs) my last name is Vignelli, not Vignelli, Vignelli, Vignelli. (laughs) And I was mortified and made the correction and we went on. But that's, he was just (laughs) the most delightful, wonderful, brilliant, adorable person. He really, I miss him so much. I think I ended up interviewing him about three or four times. We also did an interview um, 
for uh, a design conference in India called Design Yatra. And Hillman Curtis mm -hmm. filmed that Massimo was supposed to go and speak there in person and he wasn't able to travel. And so as they, the conference reached out to me and asked if I would be willing to do uh, an interview with him. And we did a live interview for the show and it was taped by Hillman Curtis. And, you know, now all these years later, both Massimo and Hillman are, are both gone tragically. And, mm -hmm. and I have that video now, which is just so precious to me to have had that experience oh, wow. with two people that I loved so much and, and really miss a great deal. That's amazing. Yeah. That's, that's a, <laughs> a gem, honestly, uh, with the, with the pronunciation thing, it's really funny. That's why, you know, if it's not a well-known person, uh, it's the first question I ask before we do these podcasts is, okay, how do we pronounce your last name? Um, just because I know that I'll mess it up. And there's an ongoing joke with uh, Josh Miles from Obsessed with Design. Um, I call him Josh oh, Melace. So yeah. <laughs> I'm like, are you sure it's not Melace? He's like, it can be. <laughs> it can if you want it to be. So if, if Mr. Vignelli were still alive and you had the opportunity to take him to dinner anywhere in the world, where, where would you go and, and what would you... Uh, what kind of food? Well, um, you know, Mr. Vignelli uh, was Italian, so I would take him to a house that I rented years and years and years ago. In 2005, I rented a house uh, of my friend Janice Pedley, who has a really wonderful uh, design firm called Pause for Thought, uh, has this amazing house that she built in Tuscany and she airbees and bees it. And so I rented it for a week in 2005 with Marion Banshees, Mark Kingsley, Armin Vitt, and Brian Nico Palacio. We had all met during our experience writing for Armin's site, Speak Up. Yeah. And so we took this vacation together and they had, it's a, I think a four or five bedroom house and it's in Vezzanello in Tuscany. And you mm. have to drive 18 hairpin turns up this amazing mountain to get to the house. And mm -hmm. the next door neighbors to Janice and Richard, who own this house together, have their own chickens and have eggs, fresh eggs every morning and gorgeous olive oil. And they plant their own, all their own vegetables and so I would bring Massimo to this house and sit out on the deck looking out at the beautiful mountains and I would have some wonderful mozzarella cheese with some gorgeous mm -hmm. crusty bread and some olive oil and some olives and sit and talk about love. I love it. Yeah. Maybe maybe add in some um chunky Chianti. Mm. You know, the kind, the kind that you got to strain a little bit, but you don't want to strain too much because I actually like a little bit <laughs> that sometimes. That sounds glorious. <laughs> I'm there. I'm there. We just got back uh, from Greece, our first Greece trip. And um, yeah, I, I don't know which I love more, the islands of Greece or Italy, but I don't yeah. have to choose. So I'll just hold them. And I think they regard. also, uh, Janice's neighbors also made the most incredible limoncello. So we'd have to have some of that. Mm. Well, that's beautiful. Let's let's take it down a few notches and go to the middle segment, which I call lovingly bang, okay. Mary kill. Um, so starting with bang, what is, what's the most guilty pleasure food drink that you bang down when no one's looking? Um, you almost don't want to admit it. Kind mm. of thing. And you can't default to the no, I know, no, because that, that would I, that wouldn't even be. So when nobody's oh, OK. Oh, goodness. Um, OK, so <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, a grande 
light espresso frappuccino from Starbucks. So all my coffee cred just goes straight out the window. Yeah. Yep. You just made every coffee uh, kind of sore cringe. I love it. Hey, to each their own. That's the yeah. most important thing. Um, which one would you marry? What, what what food or drink would you marry? Meaning every day you could wake up, drink it, eat it, and love Bread it and, and be cheese. happy. Oh yeah. Bread cheese. Absolutely. And what kind of cheese? Um, just a really nice stinky camembert or um, mm. some fabulous triple creme with a beautiful olive bread and um, some wine. That would be my go-to meal every day with some pickles and cucumbers and yeah, all the little yeah. fixings on the side. Mm-hmm. Third question, what food or drink would you just remove from the face of the planet? And maybe it's tea. Maybe you already answered that. But is there another uh, food to get rid of? Yes. Really? Okay. Oh, gum. I don't understand (laughs) gum. Why would somebody want to chew on a piece of rubber? It's ugly. You always see it in people's mouths. It's it's vulgar oh, to use a to use a Massimo word. Gum is vulgar. It's vulgar. Yeah. I just oh, that's amazing. I, I can imagine like some some poor <laughs> sap like in front of you for for whatever reason like interviewing or um trying to get a job or something chewing gum and just I don't understand <laughs> it. You just yeah, I don't understand it. gum. Oh, that's so amazing. Oh, I love it. All right, let's get into the final part here called the grids. Um, this is more about like your day to day. What what do you think? Uh, who's been the most intimidating person to interview for you and why? Oh, I'm always intimidated by Myra Kelman because I think she's such a genius and I just worship her. So I, I find it almost excruciating to to interview her, even though I adore her and always want to talk to her about anything and everything. But I'm always super intimidated. Paula Cher also intimidates me a little bit, but I'm I'm less so over the years because she's been so kind and generous and wonderful from to me and with me. And she's also become a really good friend. So, you know, I don't want to be intimidated by my friends. But her talent just intimidates me. I mean, this is a woman who's been making amazing work now for, I don't know almost 50 years and she hasn't peaked Mm -hmm. yet and that's not fair but you know kudos to her because she's just a genius and it doesn't you know she doesn't stop and everything she makes is better than the last thing she's made yeah she's just ups the ante over and over again not not to talk about sports but i feel the same way about tom brady Oh, yeah, I so know he's the quarterback he for the Patriots. I, for those I, that I, I would agree yeah. with you to, to some to some degree, um, but his politics, yeah. I can't get over the politics. Oh, sure. Yeah. But that aside, I, 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 I'm just like the two things. I'm like, dude, you don't get to be that good and, and handsome. To, and married that's to not, Giselle. That's not fair. <laughs> yeah. It's like, true. it's just not fair. You know, like you're, you're only allowed to pick one thing. You can't be everything. <laughs> Um, so when you were at Sterling Brands, you, you were able to work with a, a lot of uh, great companies. Um, I think one of them that stood out to me was Burger King. Um, what role did you play in that project? And how did you even begin to approach a brand of that um, size? With great care. Uh, we did that close to 17 years ago, I think. I think we did it around 2000. Mm-hmm. And... Um, what role did I play? Well, I was the president of the firm at that point, and my role was multidisciplinary. So I was responsible for 
bringing in all the work. So I was the chief rainmaker. I didn't do it by myself, but I was Mm -hmm. very instrumental in all of the new business efforts in the design division. And I Mm -hmm. also managed the staff and managed the P&L and really ran the business, um, this part of the business. And so my role in every project was final approval before the client saw it. So I was very, very involved in everything that we did from the very beginning of the project and winning the project, managing the relationship, overseeing the deliverable, and then the the final deliverable. That's amazing. So I think what's what, what stood out to me is I remember it, I remember it happening. I, I hate that it's 17 years ago and I'd like to forget that. And I remember thinking how fresh and new it looked and it was amazing. What's what struck me lately, and I don't know if you've noticed, um, but it seems like now going back to the original Burger King look, for instance, is what is happening in design. You know, so it's like almost like this re- revival of um, vintagey kind of uh, retro looks and feels, where low low end design is almost more um noticeable have you seen this do you you understand um, what i'm talking about definitely sort of an old school appreciation for craft and less Mm -hmm. dimension and gradations and swooshes and so forth yeah absolutely yeah so how do do you feel about that i mean uh i mean personally or professionally like uh do you think it's like a phase oh, is it just, so, part, yeah, of it's just part of the cycle of it'll change there's a continuum a pendulum goes back and forth i mean the fact that the logo has lasted 17 years is a miracle in this day and age and i'm really happy and proud mm-hmm. i know that several years ago they were thinking about redesigning it and um i was sad because i didn't want to see something that i was so proud of change um but so far that hasn't happened um, I mean, I, I love being able to go into a supermarket and see the brands that I've worked on and know all the backstories. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a real privilege to to do this kind of work for as long as I have and to feel that I've been part of the visual landscape in some way. And that, that's an interesting point and in kind of going a little bit off the, the topics that I had outlined, the backstory and and the the journey to get to places, I think, is something that is so often overlooked with rebrands or just identities in general. And people just jump in and start the commentary over what's good design and bad design. Um, now you're kind of on both sides of that wall, where you're a designer, but you're also a design critic technically. And so, how, how do you? How do you feel about the brand new comment section or just critique in general without the I think backstory? everybody's entitled to their opinion. I think that um, the only people that really like uh, packaging design changes or logo design changes are designers. You know, nobody else likes them. No one. Mm-hmm. And, and, and even then, the designers are, are super picky about what they do and don't like. Um, people like familiarity. The interesting thing about branding is that you are always straddling a continuum of the familiar and the surprising. And people want both to be surprised, but also to feel that it's something familiar. People don't like to see something that they don't understand. They always perceive ambiguity negatively. 
And so you have to be very careful about really big revolutionary changes that might make sense visually, but don't take into account that people hate change and feel very insecure and very vulnerable when they're faced with something that they believe is uncertain. And anything that we don't understand, we perceive as uncertain. So so it's, it's a really, it's a difficult landscape to be part of because you always have to balance doing something that is interesting, that is well-crafted, that makes sense strategically with something that isn't going to scare people. Um, but that being said, if you look at almost every major redesign in the last decade, the very things that people might laud now as exceptionally good were once derided as the reason that civilization is doomed. So I, I think mm. that um, I mean, people, when the Airbnb logo was changed, it was called every body part known <laughs> to, to man and woman. Yep. <laughs> um, and now people are using it as a great example of design. And it won, I think, a Grand Prix at Cannes. And oh, I wow. think that, yeah. you know, it's just a matter of time before people get used to what they're seeing and then are deeply loyal to whatever that represents to them. Yeah. Yeah. I think the same thing, you know, with uh, the UPS yeah, logo, for instance, I think we, well, well, I mean the reason behind it. So I think a lot of people were up in arms. Like, why do you, why do you change what is, you know, arguably perfect? Um, and, and there was one valuable, maybe not necessarily viable, but valuable reason to change. And that was because the inability to actually accept packages right. with twine. If you want to get, you know, that's that's an operations guy right there through and through, right? Just saying, well, we don't, we can't even ship packages like that. Um, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that any change needs to make sense strategically as well. And just because they can't ship with twine doesn't mean it needs to look like what is now being referred to as the golden comb over. So, <laughs> did you just call it the Trump of logo designs? I didn't. You did. What <laughs> <laughs> one last question for you? And I think this is. Um, you know, you make everything look easy, which I think that's the mark of a really, you know, talented uh, human in general. You do, yeah, man. You do it. You do it panache and style. Um, you know, you, you don't look, you don't come off nervous at all when you're doing interviews and the design work that you put into the world, uh, the books. Everything just looks like it was natural for you. And so, I think the big question is, what gives you trouble? Like, what do you always have trouble with, whether it's with uh, interview, critique, or design? Well. I'm very sensitive and I take everything really, really seriously, probably too seriously. I take everything personally, but I often say that, you know, if you're a person, you take things personally. Um, and so sometimes I, I let things bother me that maybe other people would shrug off. I spend an inordinate amount of time worrying that I'm not good enough and I'm not smart enough or whatever enough, whatever enough. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so yeah, that, that's something that I I'm working on with my therapist. <laughs> I think honestly, most, most, uh, creative types are, I mean, I know I do, um, constantly we, we talk about it in the office and I know there's some folks on my team that feel the same way. And I think it's, uh, that's where teams are really good, mm -hmm. right? It's just to Absolutely. uplift each other, Absolutely. keep Absolutely. each other positive. Absolutely. If I were doing this alone, oh my God, I'd probably be in a ball in the corner at this point, just <laughs> rocking back and forth. Um, so we'll end it on a high note. What is, what's your sweet spot? What do you love most everything. about what you do? I love, I love everything. I yeah. feel like I've, um, 
reached a point in my life where I'm only working on things that I really want to work on now. And it took me a long time, many decades Mm -hmm. to, to get to this place. Um, and I feel so lucky and blessed and privileged and grateful to be doing the work that I'm doing. And I sometimes have to pinch myself to then think, is this a dream or is this real? So I feel really, really grateful. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that is, I, I, that's the true goal. I think a lot of people try to attach happiness to milestones, but what you just explained, I think is where hard work and, you know, just doing good work over and over again really gets you. You that's, know, Seth Godin that's awesome. wrote a wonderful piece on his blog a couple of months ago, and it was about the difference between happiness and pleasure. And he said that pleasure is something that you're always wanting more of. You seek more, more pleasure, more pleasure. Happiness is when you have enough. And that really impacted me and has, has allowed me to see the world with slightly, in a slightly different perspective. And, and I think about that almost every day now. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day, uh, especially right before a holiday. It's, it's an honor to speak with you and just do this interview and have some fun. Um, where, where should people find you and connect with uh, on you iTunes online? at Design Matters or... Um, DebbieMillman.com for my website. Uh, I'm now part of the Drip Kickstarter community, so they can find me there, which is uh, something you can access through my Twitter feed, which is also Debbie Millman or Instagram. All the same. Awesome. That's great. I will, I will have all those links on the, um, on the show notes. And um, again, once again, thank you thank so, you much, so much, and much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me to be part of your podcast. I really appreciate it. And happy, happy Thanksgiving and good luck with your turkey. Bye. All right. Thanks so much. Bye now. Once again, everyone, thank you for tuning in. Do follow us at Grits Grids. That's Grits Grids with no end in between on Instagram and Twitter. This podcast and the Grits and Grids blog is a passion project of Vigor, a restaurant and beverage branding and marketing firm based in Atlanta. Check us out at www.vigorbranding.com. And of course, we're all over social media. Until next week, stay hungry, stay thirsty, and be creative.